We got it? Hey, there we go. Okay. Um, yeah, Mary gave me this article last night from the Washington Post. Uh, apparently, there is a raging debate in some congregations about whether or not you can wear shorts to church. There, this debate is thoroughly settled in this congregation. <laughs> you not only can, but in this kind of weather, I think you probably should. Um, we, uh, so very excited this fall we're going to have an opportunity uh, along with our friends at St. Charles Borromeo Church in Pikesville and Sacred Heart in Glendon uh, to study together the new encyclical Lumen Fide. This is usually people clap and whistle. The, uh, the Pope Francis, the new supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, has uh, come out with his, his first uh, album, so to speak. Um, the, the encyclical drops Tuesday is what they say around the Vatican. Uh, but uh, yes, this is, it, it's magnificent. This really is. It's a lovely piece of writing. Apparently, it, it, the first draft had been do, uh, done or almost completed by his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, and so this is, in a sense, uh, sort of a, a remix as well as uh, his own... Um, but it's great stuff, and, and we'll probably do this in like a theology on tap format over the fall. So we'll work out the details and let you know. Uh, but uh, many of you, many of you know that uh, uh, Pope Francis was formerly uh, Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio from Argentina. You may have heard in the news that he is going to be in Brazil this week for World Youth Day, which apparently is not just a day but a week. And I guess if you're Catholic Church, you can take a day and call it a week. And Nobody can tell you you can't. Uh, but, um, but he's going to be, uh, I think, received in, uh, in his home uh, region to, to great, uh, great enthusiasm. Um, he is the first Latin American pope. And, uh, and there is a great deal of excitement about his uh, appointment as pope, especially uh, given that he was coming from that part of the world. Um, and uh, given the fact that he had in his ministry and, and very early in his time as pope, uh, devoted great attention to addressing the needs of the poor. In fact, he took the name Francis, the first pope to have done that. Uh, he will someday be Francis I when somebody decides that he's going to be Pope Francis II, but until then he's just Pope Francis. Kind of like on the plaque here, the uh, memorial to uh, a boy who died in the World War because back then they didn't know there would be a World War II yet. So World War I was just the World War. He's just Pope Francis. Uh, but he demonstrated particular concern for the poor and by naming himself after Francis of Assisi, who was a, an Italian nobleman who uh, adopted a, uh, a lifestyle of poverty and led a, an order of people to do the same. But at the same time, he disappointed many people because in his concern for the poor, uh, he nevertheless rejected a theological movement that primarily came out of Latin America that uh, was concerned with addressing the needs of the poor, uh, but did so in a particular fashion that the church understood to be uh, rooted in bad soil. Uh, that movement is known as liberation theology. You may have heard of uh, liberation theology. People like uh, um, Gustavo Gutierrez would be a, a main uh, 
a main uh, name in that you might have heard, or Juan Segundo. Um, but the liberation theologians uh, understood God to be the God of the oppressed and the God for the oppressed against the oppressors. And this uh, understanding of the world was rooted firmly in a Marxist analysis of, of history and of society and of the economy. And uh, one of the important moves that was made in the latter part of the 20th century, and I'm about to move off of this theme for those of you who find uh, economics and politics boring, um, one of the decisive moves that was made by the Vatican was to say that in all of the church's concern for the poor and all the church's concern for the oppressed, uh, at the same time we're not going to have any theological movements that are rooted in an ideology like Marxism that is so thoroughly opposed to the gospel. Now, one of the reasons for rejecting liberation theology, and there are many of them, but one of the reasons is found in our passage today. We're in James, the book of James, uh, over the summer. And uh, James in your Bibles comes right after Hebrews. And we have our text this morning, James 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, well, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, will you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet? Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you've insulted the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of the one to whom you belong? See, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at even one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the perfect Torah that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now this admonition to impartiality is something that we find elsewhere in Scripture. We read uh, Paul in his uh, first letter to Timothy at the end uh, of chapter 5, toward the end of chapter 5, he says, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Back in the Proverbs, we find in this compendium of the wisdom of the ages, the writer of Proverbs says in chapter 28, verse 21, to show partiality is not good, yet a man will do wrong for just a piece of bread. Proverbs 24, 23 says, these also are sayings of the wise, to show partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you're innocent, people will curse him and nations denounce him, but it will go well with those who convict the guilty. 
and rich blessing will come upon them. Now, this is rooted, of course, in Torah, right? And you may remember this from our study of Torah a couple years back. There's a strong admonition that God gives to his people to judge justly. We read back in Deuteronomy chapter 16 when he says, okay, you're going to need to appoint judges among your people because there are going to be people doing naughty things and harming one another, and so we're going to have to sort this out. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town that Yahweh your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Don't pervert justice or show partiality. Don't accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live in and possess the land Yahweh your God is giving you. And at the very beginning of Deuteronomy, we read that uh, God in, in uh, sort of, or uh, Moses in, in recounting the story of how they got to that point, he says, I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, I appointed them to have authority over you, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and a foreigner. Don't show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Don't be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, Moses says, and I'll hear that one. At that time, I told you everything you were to do. So here you have this remarkable principle. Not only are people to be judging fairly, they're supposed to judge fairly even if the case involves a dispute between one of their own and a foreigner, which was by no means a common practice at the time. Usually you had the privilege, if you were part of the society, of expecting that the judgment would go in your favor. But here, God is saying, no, you need to treat the foreigner among you with the same standard of justice with which you treat your brother Israelite. But there's also something here that could be easy to miss. God says, do not show partiality in judging here both small and great alike. In other words, you need to hear the poor man as you would hear the rich man, and you need to hear the rich man as you would hear the poor man. In Leviticus 19, right before the verse that James quotes, love your neighbor as yourself, in verse 18 of chapter 19, Leviticus 19 before that says, in verse 15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor, or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Again, the principle is that the poor person and the rich person coming before you are due equal treatment, are to be treated equally. And then even more radically, if you go back in, in Torah to Exodus chapter 23, God says, do not fall, spread false reports, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, don't pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, why on earth would somebody have to warn against showing favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit or following the crowd? 
probably for the same reason there's the sign at SeaWorld that says don't jump in and try to swim with the killer whales. Evidently, at some point, somebody did that. <clears throat> we often think about partiality or favoritism as something that's going to benefit those who are wealthy or those who are great. But what Scripture commands is that we not show favoritism or partiality to those who are less either. It's interesting, Jesus when he was uh, disputing with his enemies, they were trying to flatter him and set him up when they were arguing with him back in chapter 20 of Luke. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And we know that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then Jesus does this marvelous bit of argumentative jujitsu and shuts them up. Astonished by his answer, it says, they became silent. But they praised him for being somebody who and spoke what was right and somebody who didn't show partiality but he taught the way of God in accordance with the truth and the fact is what is also clearly indicated in scripture is not that we're not is not just that we're not supposed to show partiality or favoritism but that this impartiality is rooted in God's own character let's go back to Deuteronomy Chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. We read, Now, O Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe Yahweh's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To Yahweh your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it, yet Yahweh set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, who accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear Yahweh your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down to Egypt were 70 in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's interesting here. We find that God is described as somebody who is impartial, who doesn't accept bribes, doesn't show favoritism. Yet at the same time, it describes God as somebody who chose a certain people as his beloved, as his instruments. So it seems that God's impartiality doesn't mean he can't choose certain people to do certain things or to receive certain blessings. But as we always see in Scripture, the blessings God gives are for the purpose of, 
We're blessing others. In Acts chapter 10, we find Peter understanding finally, and actually I shouldn't say understanding finally, because if you look at the way Peter's story goes, he seems to have had to be reminded of this a few times along the way. But Peter is praying, and he finds that there's this Gentile, Cornelius, the centurion who's coming to see him. Cornelius, uh, of course, was a Gentile, not the sort of person you would expect a good uh, Jew like Peter to be hanging out with. But when uh, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people, he said, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. So, Cornelius, why'd you want me to come? And he answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me, and he said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send it to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. So now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And what's the very first thing Peter says? I won't give you the whole speech. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. We even just had this in Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is talking about how everybody appears before God in the same condition. Jew, Gentile alike, bound over to slavery, to sin. And he says, remember, God, chapter 2, verse 11, God does not show favoritism. And this message is in clear contrast to that fundamental tenet of liberation theology, which says that God is on the side of the oppressed, but he is not on the side of the oppressors. This is from a theologian named Robert McAfee Brown, who's an American theologian who translated many of the ideas that were found in these Latin American theologians to an American audience. He said, yeah, the, we've been brought up to believe in a God who's the God of all people, and the notion of God exercising indiscriminate love toward all people is a healthy protection against racists. And yet there is something false and unbiblical about this view of God's relationship to the world's peoples, as we can see if we pit other groups against each other and ask whether God is equally their God. Is God as much the God of the torturers as the God of the tortured Is God equally the God of the military dictator and the God of those who are murdered by the dictator? Does God have the same disposition toward the victim of a plant closed down in Akron, Ohio, as toward members of the board of directors who shut down the plant with no concern for what will happen to the workers? Or, I might add, for the union boss who feathered his own nest by extracting concessions that were economically not viable. See what happened this week. The radical message of the gospel is that, yes, indeed, God is the God of the oppressor, 
as well as the oppressed. God is the God of the torturer as well as the tortured. God is the God of the person who does wrong as well as the God of the victim. If we've gotten nothing else out of Romans, we have gotten the fact that all of us in some way are oppressors. All of us do wrong. Now, it is true that some wrong is more impressive and some wrong is more dangerous. The great Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr pointed out that while all people are equal in sin, not all are equal in guilt. Often it is the, 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 the sin of the powerful and wealthy can do a hell of a lot more damage than the sin of the weak and poor. Not always, but often. And so it doesn't mean that God isn't concerned with the damage that our sin can do, but what it is to say is that God is concerned with the damage that all of our sin can do, not just to each other, but to ourselves and to him. And the radical message of the gospel is that the blood of Jesus purchases forgiveness for every sinner who receives redemption through his blood for everybody, even the person who victimizes another, even the person who oppresses another, even the person who tortures another. All sinners can find redemption through Jesus' blood. This is not a congenial message to a political movement that wants to pit some people against others, but it is the message of the gospel. It is the message that James is bringing to us when he reminds us that we are not to show favoritism or partiality. And as we will see next week, though there are ways in which James and Paul are in tension with each other, the gospel they are proclaiming is very much the same. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we confess that it can be easy for us when we try to understand your word, when we try to understand you easy for us to take shortcuts and we know sometimes we do that even for good reasons we do that out of concern or out of compassion we also know that we can do that selfishly we can do that blindly and we pray that every time Lord we are in error that you would show us and you would correct us we pray that you would always be revealing to us the true nature of our own sins so that we cannot stand and point a finger at somebody else without realizing that we have three pointing right back at us. We pray that you would constantly humble us and in that we look to the example of our master in whose name we pray the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.